Yeah, so I'm not Pastor Kevin. It's kind of obvious, eh? Now, I am better looking. <laughs> so, it's been some time since I preached at Greenbelt. And um, I'm thankful for the opportunity to share some thoughts with you this morning. Now, if it goes off the rails, Pastor Kevin will be back. And um, he will preach a message titled, What Paul Meant to Say Was... So, uh, we've been walking through the letter to the Roman church written by my namesake, Paul. Turns out Paul's are very smart dudes. And um, <laughs> now, if you've been in church long enough, you will have, hand, you will have undoubtedly heard preachers talk about the fact that the, the letter or the book of Romans, is a pretty dense book. And this week I read a, I read a quote um, where the Romans letter was described as the cathedral of the Christian faith. The cathedral of the Christian faith. So there can be a tendency for us to approach the Romans letter as an inaccessible or extremely difficult part of the Bible. But, we also have to remember that it is a letter. When Paul wrote to the church in Rome, as much as he was laying out a case for the faith, he was also writing a letter that did not have chapters and verses like we do these days. Honestly, I don't think that Paul thought his letter would be preserved and studied as much as we have in the thousands of years since he wrote it. And from the way he starts and ends the letter, you can tell that he was writing to his friends. There is theology and instruction in the letter, but in the end, it is a letter. A couple of years, I decided to, a couple of years ago, I decided to read Romans the same way that I would read a really long letter from a friend. It takes about 45 minutes to read through the whole letter to Romans. And it was in reading it as a letter that I started to see how preachers like myself, yes, I'm implicated in this, preachers like myself inadvertently make this letter kind of complicated and convoluted. I started to see that there was a fantastic overarching theme in his letter that could be lost in the process. That could be lost in the process of trying to put every verse and phrase and section under a microscope. You could literally miss the forest for the trees by not taking time to pull back and see the fantastic narrative that weaves its way through the letter. And you can see Paul's intent for his letter right at the beginning of Romans. In Romans chapter 1 where he says, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters. I have planned many times to come visit you, but have prevent, been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I've had among the Gentiles. I'm obligated to both Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, 
Because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. One of the reasons why Paul was such an impactful person in the early church is because he was used by God to break the gospel out of a previously, out of an insular community. Um, He was used by God to break the gospel out of the culture of the Jews who had first received it. And it is my personal opinion that the reason much of the church is here today is because of the calling of the Spirit on the life of Paul to be an apostle to the Gentiles. This is why his excitement is so palpable right at the start of his letter. You can see it in his words. Paul was saying something quite radical for his time. He was insisting that the way to be included in the work that Jesus had initiated was simply through faith. And he was pretty adamant about this. The way of redemption and salvation was one that was started by faith and not by adherence to a strict set of culturally exclusive and opaque laws and norms. And you can see him arguing about this in chapters 2 and 3. And he ends it with a powerful soliloquy in chapter 3 where he says, um, Romans 3:22. he says, This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came through Christ Jesus. God presented Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of His blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate His righteousness because in His forbearance He left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate the righteousness of the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. And then I love this. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works? No. Because of the law that requires faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too. In these and in other writings you find in his letters, Paul is making a sweeping statement about something that at his time was a deep and sometimes divisive debate. And how how we know this was an issue of much debate is in Acts 15, it's recorded, there was a council in Jerusalem. It was convened in in Jerusalem. And you see, at the time, there was a sharp dispute between people who were teaching that you could not be saved unless you were circumcised. Now, Paul and, uh, Paul and Barnabas, who was his counterpart at the time, got into such a sharp dispute with them 
that the only way to resolve this was to travel 700 kilometers back to Jerusalem. The dispute happened in Antioch. They traveled 700 kilometers. No trains, no planes, no cars. That's how you know this was a serious dispute. They traveled all the way back to Jerusalem to see the apostles and have it resolved. You see, to Paul... What he's sharing is glorious news. There is no difference between Jewish insiders and Gentile outsiders. All are on equal standing before God. All have sinned and all are justified freely by his grace. In Galatians 3, he says this. So, in Christ Jesus... You are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. This is so revolutionary. (laughs) This is so controversial for his time. And yet this is so cool. It is cool because he's building up his readers. He's making the case to them that they too, they too are full heirs and citizens in the kingdom that God has initiated through his son's death and resurrection. It is cool because he's helping his readers understand that the fullness of all that God has for each one of us is not locked behind an unscalable wall of impossible and convoluted laws. We too are heirs to the promise. We too are God's children. God sent his son not just for the few, but for the many. Romans 5, you see... At just the right time, when we were still powerless, God, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will someone die for a righteous person, for, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 8, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sin, in sinful flesh, to be a sin offering. This is the gospel. This is the good news. This is the good news that Paul starts out his letter so excited to share. This good news is to the Gentiles, and it's what animates him and inspires him. You know that, that, that story in, in Scripture when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, and then he lands on the John 3.16 passage? <laughs> when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus and he says, God so loved the world, Jesus is talking about the whole world. Not a corner of the world or a portion of the world or a section of the world. The whole world is loved by God. The whole world that seems broken and in need of repair is loved by God so much that God is moved into action. 
And so writing on the back of this good news, we land on our passage for this morning. Romans 8, starting at verse 28. You can pull it up on your device if you want to. Um, if you need a Bible um, and you do not own one, Pastor Kevin says this every week, we have a stack of Bibles in the back corner over there. Grab one. Take it for yourself. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. If you're joining us online, you can pull it up as well. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to all these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? Not one. Christ Jesus died more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God, and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for your sake, we face death all along. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Wow! A couple of years ago, there was a group of young adults that used to meet at our home. And... Um, We'd invited them into a small group because we sensed that each one of them was on their own unique journey of questioning their faith. And they needed a safe place to ask tough questions. And one of the passages that they were stuck on at the time was actually this passage. A few of them had encountered, in the earlier verses of the passage, had encountered teaching on the word predestined. And... For most of us, there's nothing unusual about the word. But to a few of us that are in the know, and if you're in the know, nod your head. I want to see. Yeah, a few of us are in the know. We understand that the theology of predestination is a debate that has existed for some time. And for certain Christian denominations, a particular understanding of predestination is part of the bedrock of their denomination. Now, allow me to get a little academic here. So, predestination in theology is a doctrine that all events have been willed by God, and usually it is done in reference to the eventual fate of the individual soul. 
Some will go so far as to say that God has already predetermined who will be saved and who will not be saved. Now, because of this theory of predestination, there are some who, in their deconstruction, have come to the conclusion that a God who would create billions of people and then predetermine that their souls will face eternal torment in hell is not a God worth following. And as you can imagine, for the young people meeting at our home, some of them were starting to feel this way. They were getting stuck. It was a source of much consternation. And it seemed like the more we studied it, the more we got stuck in this cyclical conversation. It went on and on for weeks. And then in a desperate attempt to unstick our conversation... I went and reread the whole letter of Romans. My intent in reading the letter of Romans was not to put every verse under a microscope. I felt that I should read it as a letter to see what Paul might have been saying if we pull back just a little bit and took a moment to consider his larger narrative. And when I did this, I started to see something interesting. You see, the Jews had always thought of themselves as being somewhat special on this earth. They were the people to whom the true God had revealed himself. In fact, Paul alludes to this in parts of the Romans, in the parts of the Roman letter. Like in Romans chapter 3, he says, What advantage then is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? It's right in his argument in um, chapters 2 and 3. And he says, much in in every way. First of all, the Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. You see it there. In a way, you could say that the Jews thought of themselves as being the original predestined ones. But throughout the letter of Romans, Paul is doing a really delicate dance. In my opinion, Paul is trying to get his readers to understand that predestination is not about God creating an exclusive club from the beginning of time, but rather about God throwing open the doors of his salvation to the whole world. Predestination is not for the few, but for the many. What you might think of as, an, as, as a theology of exclusion is actually a much grander, more expansive theology of inclusion. That is why we who are Gentiles, who are not the original predestined, get to be a part of it. Yes, salvation came through the Jews because Jesus was in fact a Jew, but it was not exclusive to them. And by reading the whole letter as a whole and not focusing on one verse, I started to see something cool. When Paul says, for those God foreknew he predestined, he's not saying it in a vacuum. The words that he says just before he says that, he says, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. When Paul says, for those God foreknew that he also predestined, he does not stop there. He says, to be conformed into the image of his son, 
so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Circle that word in your Bible. Many brothers and sisters. Did you see it? Many brothers and sisters. Not a few, not an exclusive group, not just the men, not just the Jews, not just the Romans. Many, many, many brothers and sisters. You see, it's unfortunate, but the history of the church is not all good. Now, I'm not talking about Greenbelt Baptist right now. I'm talking about the historic church from which we've descended. One of the things that the church has done in the past is to take this theology of predestination and use it to prescribe which racial groups God loves and which one God has damned. It was used by the Catholic Church to justify atrocities against brown people in the name of the Holy Church. It was used by the early settlers of the North American continent as a justification for slavery. In fact, the the Southern Baptists were created because people could not bring themselves to see the image of God in people they considered their property. The Methodist Church experienced a schism because there were some among them who wanted to fellowship with freed slaves and others who did not. It was used in South Africa by the minority European descendants to prop up the policies of apartheid. The church has tripped and stumbled through history where the question of integrating people that are different is concerned. It is an unfortunate thing when we allow the ugliness of the human condition to take passages of scripture that were unbelievably revolutionary for their time and twist them to suit our own selfish interests. If you really understand what Paul was about, if you really understand the assignment of the Holy Spirit, the, the assignment that the Holy Spirit had sent him on, it is my opinion that you cannot come to the conclusion that he was somehow advocating a theology of exclusion on any level. Paul was a Jew of Jews. In fact, before his conversion, he had killed Christians for what he considered a delusion and distortion of the beliefs of his time. And yet something radical happened in him. It was so radical that it propelled him out of his previously insular culture and made him an apostle to people he would have never associated with in the first place. The reason that he was so excited about the gospel and the fact that it was a power of God that brings salvation was because he had come to the understanding that the gospel was for the many and not just the few. It literally changed him from the inside out. That is why he concludes in this triumphant way. Let's go back to the passage we read. Verse 31. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? 
It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? Not one. Christ Jesus died. More than that, was raised to life, is at the right hand of God, and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? Verse 37, no. In all these things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. If God is for us, who can be against us? Do you understand how awesome this is? You are a child of God. A child of God. As a child of God, the spirit that you received does not make you slaves so that you might live in fear again. Rather, the spirit that you received brought about your adoption into God's family. The spirit himself testifies with our spirits that we are God's children. I literally don't have to preach here. I'm just, I'm just reading from earlier in chapter 8. In verse 33, who will bring against, who will bring any charge against those who God has chosen? No one. Why? Because in chapter 8 verse 1 he says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Jesus the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Amen. When you understand what Paul was on about, it ignites something inside of you. In John 3.16 and 17, and I love the way it says it in the message, it says this, This is how much God loved the world. He gave His Son, His one and only Son, and this is why. So that no one need be destroyed. By believing in Him, Anyone and everyone can have a whole and lasting life. It goes on to say in verse 17, God did not send his son into the world merely to point an accusing finger telling the world how bad it was. He came to help to put the world right again. And because God sent his son, Romans 8.35, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Absolutely nothing. Not trouble. Not hardship. Not persecution or famine. Not nakedness or danger. Not death. Not life. Not angels. Not demons. Not the present. Nor the future. Not powers. Not height. Not depth. Not anything else in all creation. Absolutely nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And so when Paul says... That we are more than conquerors. He's talking about something deeper than conquest as we would normally refer to it. His letter to the church in Rome was written. He was a citizen of Rome, not just a citizen of Rome. But he was also a person living under the colonial rule of Rome. His letter was written to enslaved people. And also to free people. This letter was written to those with incredible economic and social privilege. 
but it was also written to those who had to scrape and fight for their place in the world. So when he says we're more than conquerors, he's talking about something deeper. Being more than a conqueror is about a mindset. The circumstances around you may be saying one thing, but the God you serve says something different about you. The circumstances around you might say that you are destitute and alone, but God says he is for you. The circumstances around you might say that you are held down because of your race or your gender, but God says that there is nothing in all creation that can separate you from his love. While it might seem like the laws of man are designed to thwart you at every turn, God says that a new law is in operation, a law in which you are more than a conqueror, and that in all things, all things, in all, all things, even things that look like they might be there to destroy you, in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. I don't know what your unique situation is. I don't know where you stand with regard to your faith, or if you even believe the Christ story. But what I know is that there is an invitation in our passage this morning. For those of you that are skeptical about Christianity, and you're not even sure what you believe, there is an invitation into a life that might seem like it's too good to be true. And the fact of the matter is that it is. A life on God's terms is both terrifying and wonderful. It is terrifying because you have to take your hands off of the steering wheel of your life and trust Him with it. But it is wonderful because when you do, He takes you to places you would have never known, and he opens up your life in ways that you could have never done on your own. God loves you so much. And he has demonstrated it through his son. God made the first move. And all we have to do is respond. So would you? And if you're watching online, I invite you to make this response public by clicking the pop-up that shows up in the chat. And if you are here in person, I invite you to tell me after the service or tell the person that you came with. Tell someone. While reading through this part of the Romans letter, I started to feel that this, this is like the high point in the letter. This joyous proclamation of the unceasing love of Christ. And in this glorious portrait, I started to see that perhaps there is a second invitation. A second invitation to those of us that have been on this Christ journey for some time. You see, the longer that you walk this Christ journey, it is so easy to fall into a kind of apathy and indifference about our journey. It can be so easy for us to take our eyes off the glorious revelation of Christ's love and descend into factions and squabbling or indifference or whatever. This is why a passage like this one in Romans can be twisted so much and be used as a wedge to divide 
The invitation is to remember that God is for you. The invitation is to remember that Christ justifies and does not condemn. The invitation is to remember your place in God and remember that there is nothing that can separate you from His love. When you remember this, when you remember this, you go from a grave-tending, unserious life to an adventurously expectant one, greeting God with a child like, what's next, Dad? Let's go. And you can do this no matter how old or young you are. You can do this because you're being constantly renewed on the inside. It is an invitation to remember that when you face persecution or famine or danger or death or life or angels or demons, a bleak present and uncertain future, you are more than a conqueror. You do not face these circumstances with fear and trembling. No. You face them with the God of angel armies by your side. The battle is not yours. The battle belongs to the Lord. It is not by might nor by power, but by the Spirit of God. This is the kingdom. A place in which God has thrown his doors wide open. A place in which God's love is not withheld because of our unique distinctions, but rather one in which we can all find healing and restoration and forgiveness and salvation. A kingdom in which we walk in a victory that is not our own, but has already been won for us. Christ is at the center of this kingdom. And all we have to do is step in, step in by faith, and trust that when we do, we will be transformed from the inside out. Amen. As a response to this, I'd like us to take just a minute or two. And let it, let it sit inside of you. How is this struck you? Is there a thought or a verse or something that stood out for you? And if there wasn't, it's okay. <laughs> but if there was, grab a hold of it in your mind. Maybe you need to write it down. Maybe you need to put it in your phone. If you're watching online, maybe you need to put it in the chat or write it down somewhere. Don't leave this message here. Take it with you. You're more than a conqueror. Nothing can separate you from God's love. Let's just take a, a minute or so of silence to do that.